beauty of creation. Uh, the beautiful gimbals, all sorts of things are beautiful in creation. You might be thinking of the, the loving relationships, perhaps in your family, perhaps with your spouse, perhaps with your children. There are lots of good things that we can enjoy about those. Uh, you might think about the power of community. When people, perhaps strangers, come together, pool their talents and their ability and their motives to achieve some common good. You might think of the enjoyment of food and drink. There's all sorts of things in the world where, which are good that we can enjoy. But for as many good things, we can also think of bad things. The world is racked by war and conflict. As far as I understand, there's not been a single year in all of recorded history where the world has been at peace. There is, in the news, we're often reminded of the inequality in the share of wealth in the world. 1% of people own almost 50% of the world's wealth. There is a climate crisis as well, isn't there? The world seems to be broken. And not just in the big things out there, it seems to be broken in our lives as well. There are broken relationships, broken marriages, broken friendships. There is loss, death. There is pain and illness. There are debts that people live with, crippling debts. There's mental health problems. One in four people in the UK suffer from mental health issues. There's all sorts of ways in which we might describe the world as a bad place. Now, whichever way you fall in answer to that question, good or bad, it would be hard to say that the world is all bad. And it would be just as hard to say that the world is all good. It seems to be a balance of the two. And the Bible's answer is that the world is frustrated. The world is frustrated. And that's what I want to try and uh, come to understand this morning. Uh, Understanding what the Bible means when it says the world is frustrated is vital to getting a right sense of this world. And more importantly, it's the only explanation that doesn't either leave us in total despair or have us burying our heads in the sand, hoping that the bad things don't catch us up. So this morning, we're going to try and see what the Bible means when it says that the the world is frustrated. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so it'll be right at the beginning, the third chapter. Uh, We've been going through Genesis over the past few weeks, um, We've heard, we've read about how Genesis describes the creation of the world, how God made it good, very good. Good, not according to our standard, but good according to God's standard. Everything was just as he designed it to be. He designed the world a perfect place, a place for human flourishing and for human blessing, for us to grow and develop. He created the place where humans could rule and subdue and rule over the earth, where we could serve God and honour him by doing that. And then we heard about how mankind rebelled against God. One command had been given, not to eat the fruit from a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, the first two humans, despite having everything else that they needed, decided to break that command, having no physical need of that fruit. They broke that command and took the fruit and ate it. And that disobedience of God's command disobedience of God's command in general, whether it's that first command or the commands that God has given us since, 
Disobedience of God's command is what the Bible calls sin. And that first sin is so significant because not just that the action, you know, the action of eating a fruit is not the sinful thing. Uh, Adam and Eve were, were instructed to eat from the other tree. It's not the eating that was sinful. The thing that was sinful was the motive of their heart that led them to eat from that tree. You see, when Adam and Eve took that fruit and ate it, their actions said to God, we don't believe that what you have said will really happen. Their actions said to God, we don't believe we will really die if we eat this fruit that you've told us not to. In effect, they said to God, you're not true. Their actions, in effect, said to God, we don't believe that you've got our best interest at heart. We don't believe that you've given us enough good things. We believe there's something more that you're holding back from us. In effect, their actions said to God, you are not good. When Adam and Eve took that fruit, they were saying to God, we don't want you to be in charge. We're not interested in submitting to your law. In effect, they said to God, you are not our God. And by eating that fruit, Adam and Eve were exalting themselves, putting themselves on a pedestal. They were seeking to find their own authority, their own autonomy in the world. They wanted to be king. They wanted to be boss. They were saying to God, you're not true, you're not good, and you're not even God. That's what makes that first sin so important. And it becomes the paradigm then, the pattern, the default for every sin that follows. Every time we today break one of God's commands... Uh, the commands that can be grouped into two simple commands, love God and love your neighbour, worked out in lots of practical ways. Every time we break one of those commands, we say the same things to God. You're not true, you're not good, and you're not God. And I seek to exalt myself. Well, just as God promised, there are consequences to sin. Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 the consequences that God placed upon the serpent. And this week we're going to focus on Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, which is God's judgment on Eve, the woman. Let's read the verse together. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, to start with, we can split this verse into sort of two main sections. There are two main results of God's judgment upon the woman. The first is pain in childbirth. Now, that's something that still happens today. I'm sure if uh, if you've ever been present at a childbirth, if you've known women who have given birth, I'm sure you will know something of the pain that women have to go through as they give birth to children. Um, but the pain that women uh, experience during that process is, is, is more than just the result of uh, the, our de- the design of our bodies. It's more than just a result of geometry, as it were. Uh, there is something else, according to this verse, that is happening. You see, the pain is not just a result of the shape of our bodies, or the shape of women's bodies, and the shape of the baby, and, and everything else that might cause the pain. The pain is a result of God's judgment. God says, I will greatly increase your pain. The pain that women feel in childbirth is a result of God's judgment upon mankind, humankind, upon women in particular. And so there's a difference in the way that women give birth today than there was when women were originally designed. 
These verses as well hint at more than just physical pain in giving, in giving birth. The second part of that, that section, it says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. That bit, you, you could easily translate that. Um, with pain, you will bring forth children. It suggests that this relates to more than just the actual few hours of the, the childbirth. And so you think about that t- today in our experience. We see that is uh, the, the whole experience is marked by pain and sorrow and difficulty. At one end, you, you've got the, the problems of infertility, difficulty conceiving, the pain that comes with that and the sorrow. And then you've got the issues of miscarriage and stillbirth. Then you get to the birth, and of course you've got the pain of the birth, but you've also got the, the dangers that come with it. Even today with modern medicine, childbirth is not a safe thing to be doing. It's dangerous. There's danger of death for both the mother and for the child. And then you've got the sometimes heartache, trauma, difficulty, sleepless nights that come after the birth in rearing children. That would be Eve's own experience. The next chapter, she finds that of of the children that she bears, her two sons, one kills the other. Bearing children will be marked by pain and difficulty, God says. And we see how this judgment continues to show its effects, even today. Now, the second result of God's judgment relates to the marriage relationship. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And what's this referring to? Well, at first glance, you might think that this relates to the different roles within marriage. Okay, this is about uh, men ruling, uh, having the headship, and women submitting to them. But that's not quite a right assessment of of this verse, what's going on here. You see, for starters, in chapter 2, before the fall, before any sin, before God's judgment, we already see a different role between men and women. Eve is made as a helper to Adam. Adam names his wife. It's quite a significant act in, in, in the culture in which this was written. Uh, naming is, uh, implies authority. And so we see that even in chapter 2, even before the fall, men and women have different roles. There is already headship of the male and submission of the wife. But there's something else going on here. Let's have a think about the words used. Your desire will be for your husband. What does it mean by this desire? Is it a desire of love? Is it a a jealous desire? Is it a, a secretive desire that's not expressed? What does it mean? Well, in the next chapter, chapter 4, the same word is used again. And this time, God says to Cain, sin desires to have you, but you must master it. Or in other words, you must rule over it. So you get an almost uh, exact same construction again in the next chapter. And And in the next instance, it's saying sin is the thing that desires to have you. It wants to control you. It wants to grab you. It wants to rule over you. It wants to subdue you. That's what it means by this desire. And so when we read that back into chapter 3, we see the judgment that God is is showing is that women will have this desire to overthrow their husbands, to rule over them, to subdue them, to press them down. But what will be the response? Your husband will rule over you. Actually, he will be the one that takes the upper hand. He will be the stronger one. He will oppress and subdue you. 
Now that verse isn't setting the normal pattern for Christian marriages. That's not God's intended design for marriage. This is a judgment. This is the result of sin. God's intended design for marriage was back in chapter 2. Where, yes, we get the different rules. Yes, we get the male headship and the the female submission to that headship. But if you look at chapter 2, the the emphasis is not on one subduing and ruling over the other. The emphasis is on equality. Adam uh, names all the animals in the animal kingdom. And there's not one helper found suitable. And so God puts Adam to sleep. It takes a piece from Adam's side, not from his head and not from his feet, but from his side, and he fashions a woman from it. And when Adam sees the woman, he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He says essentially, this is the one. We're the same. We're equal. She's just like me. None of the animals were like me. They were all different. And here is a woman who's like me. She's the same. We are equal. And the next verse, uh, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. God's design for marriage is that men and women should be equal. Yes, in different roles, male headship and uh, the wife submitting, but equal. And in the judgment, God has said, that equality will be lost. There will always be a battle for one to rule over the other, for one to suppress the other. And if you think about it, that's exactly what was happening in the sin itself. Eve had been tempted by the offer of becoming like God. You could become like God if you take this fruit, the serpent said. You could be in control. And she took it, she wanted it. And Adam did the same. And this desire for autonomy, this desire to rule, will now be played out in the marriage relationship. And when we look around the world today, we see it's not just limited anymore to the marriage relationship. Across society, for hundreds of years, we've seen women oppressed by men. We see it actually in almost any sphere where there's a a grasp for authority. It's what results in racism, for example. It's what results in those 1% having 50% of the, the wealth. All ways in which people grasp for authority, pushing down, oppressing, subduing others in the process to get at it. The sin of Adam and Eve brings consequences, and they are consequences that still show their effects today. Now the question might come, and certainly came to me as I was reading these verses, why on earth has God given these judgments in particular? The command was, don't eat from this tree. And the threat was, if you do eat from this tree, you will die. But then when the judgment comes, the judgment is pain in childbirth and difficulty in your marriage relationship. How do they link? How are these judgments the the logical result of the sin Adam and Eve have committed? What's the link here? Does the punishment fit the crime? And uh, to answer that, well, that's why we read from Romans chapter 8. So in Romans chapter 8, we read verse 20. It says, creation was subjected to frustration. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. The key idea is frustration. Creation has been subjected to frustration. What do we mean by frustration? When 
In normal speech, you use the word frustration. Often, we mean something like angry or annoyed. And that's close to the, the technical meaning of frustration, but it's not quite the idea that's, that's on offer here. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. I, when I was a child, I used to play a game called Frustration. Some of you might still have this game called Frustration. My mum thought it was hilarious because she said, without fail, every time you play this game, somebody will cry. Okay? And that, that, that tickled my mum, you know. And uh, the way you play this game is you roll a dice and you've got four pieces. And when you roll a dice, you've got to move your piece, however many numbers that the dice says, round the board. And when you get them all the way around the board, you put them in your home space. And once you've got all four pieces round, you win. But the problem is, everybody else is trying to do the same. And if somebody else's piece lands directly on top of yours, you have to go backwards. Not just one step, not just two steps, you have to go right back to the beginning. Now, imagine you're a six-year-old and you've got three pieces there. I just need five more spaces to get to the end. And your brother comes along and pounces on and, got you. Now, there is a way that you can say, oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, you're in my way, you need to take your piece back to the beginning. But with brothers, that's not what happens. The piece gets picked up, thrown in your face, you loser, get back to the beginning, you know. And so you can see how people easily start crying. Um, to be frustrated is to be hindered in what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to get your pieces to the end, and the game is called frustration, because somebody else will land on you and stop you achieving that goal. This is what it means by frustration. And the Bible is telling us creation has been subjected to frustration. The judgments that God placed upon Adam and Eve, the pain in childbearing, the difficulty in marriage, they are a frustration of the design for creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, we heard that humanity was blessed. God blessed Adam and Eve and commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. The design for them was to reproduce, to expand, to fill the world with other uh, God, God's image bearers, to serve God and to subdue the earth. That was their design. That was the intention. That was the blessing that God had given them. And now comes a judgment that will frustrate that goal. Actually, yes, the blessing is still there. Go and multiply and fill the earth, but... The process of giving birth, of bearing children, will be painful. It will be difficult. Creation has been subjected to frustration. And similarly, in the marriage relationship, Eve was designed to be a helper to Adam, to serve alongside him, to support him, to do different roles so that they could be more effective together than each would be on their own. And now that relationship has been distorted. It's been frustrated. Instead of working together, side by side, pursuing God's goal and God's glory, they're going to be at battle with one another. The battle of the sexes has begun. God has frustrated the purpose of his creation. And so the punishments that God gives, these judgments, far from being arbitrary, far from being unrelated to the sin that they've committed, Well, the punishments fit the crime quite well. Indeed, you could say that the punishments are the inevitable result of their crime. Adam and Eve, in reaching for the fruit, in trying to trying to subvert God, trying to set themselves up as the authority, they were just doing the same thing. They were frustrating the goals of creation. 
they were diverting from the plan that God had given them. And God hadn't wiped out the blessings that had given them. He hadn't wiped out the blessing of marriage. He hasn't wiped out the blessing of fruitfulness and multiplication. But within that blessing, there is now this difficulty and this frustration and this hurt. So where does that leave us now? Does God then just leave the world to spin on in endless frustration? Always getting our pieces ever closer to that home space just to be pounced on by the annoying little brother again? Or no? And I'll take you back to Romans 8 for this. I'll read the verse to you again. For creation was subjected to frustration, next verse, in hope. Creation was subjected to frustration in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. You know, when God passed his judgment upon sin, by rights, actually, he could have just wiped out the earth. He could have wiped out everything and started again. But he didn't. He left his blessings in place. He allowed his blessings to remain. He subjected creation to frustration only in the hope and with the promise that the frustration would one day be undone. He he subjected it to frustration with the promise that one day that frustration would be undone. And so the creation is waiting, it is hoping, it is expecting its liberation, its freedom. It's waiting to be renewed. It's as if the creation, actually Romans 8 says, is in the pains of childbirth. It's struggling on. It's living through that unbearable pain right now. Not pointlessly, but because it knows what's coming next. You go through the pain of childbirth ready to deliver the child, ready to deliver what is new. Creation is now in those pains of childbirth, ready to give birth to the new creation. And that's not just a New Testament doctrine. That's not something you only get from Romans 8. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 as well. Even in this curse that God has given. Last week we were reading about the curse that God placed upon the serpent. We heard about the serpent was promised that there will be enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers. And he, that is one of the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. There was a promise, even in the curse, that the serpent would be defeated. And there is a, that promise in, in the judgment upon the woman is reaffirmed. You see, the, 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 the judgment on the woman is that in your childbearing, you will suffer pain. In other words, you are going to bear children. You are going to reproduce. This one will come from you who's going to crush the serpent. He's going to come. The promise is true. The promise is real. You've been subjected to frustration in hope. And the only thing is that that hope will come through a path marked by suffering and pain. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we see a pattern established which then repeats itself throughout the Bible. A pattern that is salvation is always preceded by suffering. The path to salvation is marked by suffering. You can think of the descendants of Abraham, for example, who suffered as slaves in Egypt for 400 years, 
before God sent a deliverer, Moses. You could think of the nation of Israel who wandered the desert aimlessly, as it were, for 40 years before being brought into the promised land. They went through suffering and difficulty and pain before being brought into salvation. You can think of King David who was on the run for his life for a decade after being anointed king before actually becoming king. He suffered before being brought into his salvation. And you can think of Jesus Christ who was born into poverty, lived an obscure life, was taunted and chased down and hunted by the religious elite who suffered a humiliating and painful death despite doing no wrong, who died on the cross like a criminal before his resurrection, before his ascension into glory, before receiving all authority from the Father, before sitting down at the right hand of God. Christ's path was marked by suffering before glory. And the same pattern that Christ suffered is the same pattern that Christians suffer today. Romans 8 urged us, if you are willing to share in Christ's sufferings, you will be invited to share in Christ's glory. Just like creation, we continue through the difficulty of this world. We continue waiting for freedom, waiting for the liberation, waiting for the day when Christ will return and undo the act of frustration. When he will roll back the effects of the curse. In the new creation, there will be no such thing as pain. There will be no such thing as death. There will be no mourning or crying or tears. In the new creation, the battle for supremacy will be over. Those difficulties in the marriage relationship, in, in humans trying to usurp one another, trying to grab authority from themselves, it will all be done. Because in the new creation, all authority will be Christ's. He will sit on the throne. He will reign. And you know what? You will reign with him. There'll be no need for any of us to grasp for authority because we will share all authority with Jesus Christ our Saviour. This is the hope that creation has been given while it's subject to frustration. And so to conclude, I would say to those who really feel the pain of this struggle, to those who really feel the frustration of living in a world marked by sin, under the judgment of God, subjected to frustration, well, to you I'd say be reminded that in Christ you can be counted as more than conquerors over these struggles that you now face. I consider that our present sufferings, they're just not worth considering to the glory that will be revealed in us. Christ has already overcome the serpent. He has already crushed his head. And so the promise of liberation is certain. We're just waiting for it. And so whether you see it now, whether you even believe it now, the promise of Christ is that he is turning your sufferings into the pathway to glory. Your sufferings that you face now are the pathway towards your glory that you will one day share with him. And to the rest, I would remind you of the question that we started with. Is the world generally a good place or a bad place? 
And I imagine most of us can recognise some good and some bad. But maybe it is that you are, you are trying to just ignore the bad and make the best of the good while you can. Trying to bury your head in the sand. Trying to just make the best of a bad situation. And the truth is, this world has been frustrated. And so if you are setting your heart on anything that this world is offering, however vague or or ethereal that might be, if you're setting your heart on happiness or family or community or love or whatever else, if you're setting your heart upon money, upon power, then the truth of the situation is all you can ever expect to experience in the end is suffering, frustration, incompleteness. A lack of what you're chasing after. You'll never quite get there. You could get so close, but you'll never get there. You'll not find satisfaction in chasing after the things in this world. And when we do, and when we ignore the offer that Christ gives us, we become, we become like children who, in the words of one author, reject the offer of a holiday by the sea in favour of making mud piles in the slum. Basically because they don't know what a holiday by the sea would be like. Don't be that child. Don't cling to this world and all it offers. Its pleasures become disappointments. All it can offer in the end is loss and lack of satisfaction because this whole world is subjected to frustration. And by clinging to it, you're forfeiting the offer of something much greater, something better, something everlasting. Don't set your hearts on this world. Set your hearts upon Christ and the eternal life and the weight of glory that he offers.